BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Here's the heart of today's show. Journalist Sam Quinones has spent more than a decade chronicling the expansion of synthetic drugs. Now fentanyl and methamphetamine are being produced at a scale and potency that would have been unimaginable even 10 years ago. Those drugs are meeting a public health approach to treating drug addiction that's become known as harm reduction, which grew out of the AIDS crisis terrible impacts on intravenous drug users. Quinones wants to challenge the ways that places like San Francisco are treating drug users, arguing that the changes in the drug supply demand different tactics. We'll talk with him and a leading harm reduction advocate after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We know there's a drug crisis. The part of it you've heard about the most concerns fentanyl, and rightly so. Fentanyl has driven up national drug overdoses by more than 2x just since 2015. We're now talking about over 100,000 people dying in a year, and it's largely due to the introduction of this very powerful synthetic opioid into the nation's illicit drug markets. In San Francisco, which had seen remarkable success in reducing overdoses through harm reduction strategies, Overdose deaths had been as low as 222 just a handful of years ago. But deaths have been spiraling upward, setting a record high of over 700 in 2020, and on track this year to top 800. The drug overdose rate could end up close to 4x higher than in 2010. That's fentanyl. But if you heard our show last week on the major new report from UCSF on homelessness... The drug that is by far the most widely used by people on the streets, according to that survey, is meth. To me, this came as a surprise. In the history of drug use I had in my own head, meth was something that exploded in the 90s but got superseded by prescription opioids and then fentanyl. But it turns out that meth is now cheaper, more potent, and far more widely available than it was in the Sudafed meth lab era. Here to help us make sense of what's happened, why it's been so damaging to our communities, even in places that seem to have figured out how to deal with the previous generations of drugs, we're joined by Sam Quinones, a journalist who's been covering drugs for a long time. His books include The Least of Us, True Tales of America, and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth, and Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me, Alexis. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for joining us. I I want you to talk a little bit about this change that you have seen and chronicled in your in your work over the years of just a massive new supply of 
two drugs that you argue are basically new types of drugs in this uh, in this world. Yeah, and they're new um, because of their potency and because of the enormous supplies uh, that we've we really have not seen the drugs this potent in this kind of supply. I think ever, uh, and that's because they're synthetic, made made only from chemicals, and that's because the Mexican trafficking world has access to the ingredients to make both these drugs in staggering quantities coming in mostly uh, to their shipping ports uh, uh, along the Pacific coast, also Mexico City Airport, um, um, largely from 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 China. Uh, these drugs have basically created something we've never seen before, which is. One source, generally in the Mexican trafficking world, which is centered mostly along the western, uh, central western uh, coast of Mexico, um, has been able now, one source has been able to cover the country with not one but two uh, uh, drugs that are uh, the most potent, the most deadly, the most mind-mangling in the case of methamphetamine. That that we've that we've ever seen, and largely because of their their potency and the vast supply. So you see, this has happened all across. This, this, it's a remarkable thing. We used to have regional differences mm-hmm. in our drug use. They, one place would be very different than five hundred miles away. Now, really, the story seems to be very very similar. No matter where you go, I've spoken all over the country, and I'm finding in Idaho or in Oklahoma or in uh, North Carolina or in California. The stories end up being pretty much the same. It's fentanyl and meth, meth and fentanyl, depending on where you are. And uh, it's because of the staggering supply that is now they're now able to they're now making uh, uh, out of Mexico, which has also, in case of methamphetamine, erased all. The- Oh, I think we might have lost Sam there for a second. We actually have another guest with us here this morning that I want to introduce. Vitka Eisen is president and CEO of HealthRight360, that's San Francisco's largest drug treatment provider. Welcome, Vitka. Thanks for having me, Alex. So, Vitka, I wanted to ask you, you know, Sam was saying that the that he's watched these drugs kind of wash over the whole country. From your perspective on the ground in San Francisco, what does that look like? Well, I first want to say that those drugs have been around in San Francisco for a really long time. Uh, We've had meth and we've had fentanyl. Those have been part of the drug supply for literally decades. Uh, I'm a treatment provider. Uh, I work in treatment. I've worked in treatment for uh, 35 years. I'm also a former drug user. Believe it or not, a former drug user who used opioids, used heroin, and uh, in the early '80s, and we used fentanyl. Then it was mm. called China White, but it was fentanyl. So they've been around for a really long time. The challenge we have right now is that the supply itself is uh, it's it is cheap and it is readily available, um, and it's it's it is toxic. It's it's poisonous. It's not it's not. Um, so you know the the answer to that is not necessarily an addiction. The answer to the situation we face here is providing care for people who use dr- drugs. Yeah. But when we talk about the supply and we talk about the nature of these drugs and, and their potency and their availability, what, like, how did you actually see that change reflected in the people that you were, you were working with here? 
So I haven't seen a change in the in reflected in the people who use meth. That's the people who use meth have used meth for a long time. Meth has been around for a long time. The meth we see today isn't essentially more potent than meth used to be. It's whatever the precursor chemicals that are used to make it. The end result of that is methamphetamine, um, and um, and so the, the the challenge and the risk with the drug supply today is that. Um, it is often of unknown kind of provident, provenance and potency in a particular dose. And so that it, there is more of a risk because the supply is toxic. There's more of a risk that a person may take a dose that is more potent than their body is able to handle or that it might be accidentally tainted with a drug they weren't e- expecting. For example, you may have somebody who uses typically methamphetamine and who is what we would call opioid naive, meaning their body hasn't, they haven't mm-hmm. any um, tolerance built up to opioids, and it is tainted, not intentionally, but it necessarily, but it's tainted with um, fentanyl, and it might result in an overdose. Mm. And that um, overdoses, the challenge with overdoses from fentanyl is that they can happen, potent fentanyl can happen really fast, mm-hmm. unlike heroin overdoses, which could happen over a protracted period of time. So a person has a dose that is toxic for them, um, and they can overdose within a matter of minutes. And so the response must be rapid. Yeah. You know, um, Sam, uh, before we uh, before we lost you, Vitka was saying that the precursor drugs, uh, precursor chemicals that go into manufacturing meth, she doesn't see as, as significant in the sort of end result meth and the way that people end up using it and the effects that it ends up happening, uh, uh, the effects that end up happening in their mind. You've argued um, something else. You've argued something different, that the process, a particular chemical process that, um, that drug producers in northern Mexico are using is, in fact, generating different uh, different behaviors in people. Can you talk a little bit about that and what the evidence you have for that is? Well, well, let me say this. When I was writing that, I was, I was, um, uh, these were, these were ideas. No one was studying this. And so I was saying it's possible that this is one reason for the methamphetamine nowadays creating very rapid descent into symptoms of schizophrenia. I'm, I was not, as I said in the book, I'm not really sure why that this is happening, but one op- possibility was the the enormous, uh, the, the, the various uh, toxic chemicals that are now being used to make it. Uh, since then, uh, no one, as again, as I, as I said, no one was really writing about this. No one was addressing this uh, that I could find uh, until my book came out. And then um, uh, as, as more and more uh, folks on the ground, I think, began to look into this, began to understand what I was saying was happening, um, and maybe had already seen it happen, didn't quite know why, I think a lot of people have come to the idea that it's simply because of the enormous purity and potency with which that those drugs are being made, the methamphetamines being made, and, and that with, with which it's arriving at in the, in the United, United States. And what you're finding is the supply is so vast, so uh, potent, that um, no one's cutting their drugs. It used to be that people would cut drugs, their, their dealers would cut their drugs to make them last longer. And, and you're finding, I'm not finding that very much. I'm finding extraordinary potencies at the, at the uh, street level um, being tested for such and, and finding, you know, 95, 98%, whatever it happens to be. And that this may be more, the most potent method that anybody 
that has been ever visited on the, on, on the human brain, certainly in the supplies with which they are being um, um, smuggled into the United States, and that this may in fact be part of the problem, uh, as well may be in fact the problem. Um, the problem is I don't think there's been any long-term studies on the effects of P2P meth, uh, the way it's showing up from Mexico in the last five or eight years or so. And so this is, this, um, when I was writing my book, I was saying these are the possibilities of what's happening here. But what is not, I don't think, up, up for debate is that this methamphetamine is creating these kinds of symptoms very, very quickly on, on the street that people um, are very, very hard to tell apart from uh, actual organic schizophrenia. And, and, that, and that frequently, too, that what it, the symptoms don't take a long time to fade once per, people stop using and that this this also is a major reason why people are um some people are homeless but other people are remain homeless no matter what the reason is for their homelessness they uh when they get get in contact with this drug it's very very difficult to dig themselves out of that that hole we're talking about the strategies to reduce drug addiction changes in the drugs that have come into our cities and overdose deaths we're joined by sam quinones a journalist and author, he's got a recent piece in The Atlantic titled America's Approach to Addiction Has Gone Off the Rails. He's got a couple of books as well, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth and Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. We're also joined this morning by Vitka Eisen, president and CEO of HealthRight 360. That's San Francisco's largest drug treatment provider. We would love to hear from you on this show. We know that people are seeing this play out on the streets. We know that people are seeing this play out inside their families. What strategies do you think we should be employing to reduce drug addiction and death? The name, the number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads. We're KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madder. We're talking about the massive changes that have occurred in the street drugs here in the U.S. and strategies to reduce drug addiction and overdose deaths. We're joined by Sam Quinones, journalist and author covering drugs for quite a long time. He's got a new article in The Atlantic called America's Approach to Addiction Has Gone Off the Rails. We're also joined by Vitka Eisen, president and CEO of HealthRate360. That's San Francisco's largest 
drug treatment provider. And we're going to get to some of your calls and questions during the hour about the strategies you think we should be employing to reduce uh, addiction and deaths. Number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads for KQED Forum. Sam, I wanted to ask you about sort of the way that you're talking about the changes in these drugs leading to changes in people's behavior on the streets. Like, I understand what you're saying about the changes in the production uh, methods and scale that have occurred. But I kind of worry that we might be repeating some of the mistakes of the crack era where all kinds of kind of lore and mythology sprung up around the drug itself. Like, how can we be Mm -hmm. sure we're not making that mistake again? Oh, I mean, I don't know. I think we need to understand that the drugs we have on the street in the potency and the supply uh, that they are on the street are changing everything. That's I think that's very clear. Um, And so we need to rethink how this uh, everything, as they say on the street, fentanyl changes everything. I think meth does too, frankly. Um, we need to rethink all kinds of things. There's almost nothing about these drugs. It changes everything from how they're made, how they're smuggled, the profit, treatment, addiction, overdose. I mean, there's like everything is, is, is different. Now, the problem we had in prior eras was, I, I think there's this feeling like, well, we use we, we, we law enforcement, so we should never use law enforcement again. My feeling was we, the problem with earlier eras, I covered the crack epidemic in the town of Stockton. I was a crime reporter out there uh, for several years in the late 80s, early 90s, and saw this uh, very close. It was not that we use law enforcement, it was that we only use law enforcement. Whenever you d- use a, uh, a one tool to treat something that ha- derives from the brain chemistry and the reward pathways in the brain, you are going to have trouble with it. We just, at that time, nobody really thought much about it because that's the way we'd always, always uh, uh, done it. I saw no member of the community of Stockton, California, saying we should not put people in jail for being uh, uh, addicts and just let them rot there, that kind of idea. Um, I think, I think the, the, the drugs on the street now are calling on us to use every tool at our disposal. And that includes very definitely without a doubt law enforcement. The problem is I think frequently we get into this idea like, well, we tried that. It didn't seem to work. And so we're not going to ever touch it uh, uh, again. But again, I say that the the real problem is not that we use law enforcement, that we only use law enforcement. And there's many, many tools out there and law enforcement, absolutely um, uh, 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 one of them, and that's what I write about in the piece that you referred to in the, yeah. in the, in the Atlantic, the use of jail and, uh, in various parts of the country are being, it's, are, are very healthy, uh, oh. the way they're rethinking how jail is done, that kind of thing. Yeah. And we're going to get, we're going to get to more of that soon. Vitka, I wanted to ask you though, about kind of the, the core premise of whether you see these drugs in the sort of the scale that they're available their potency, their effects on people. Does that change everything? Um, we certainly see that overdose deaths seem like we did need some new strategies, right? Um, because they have they have gone up. So how do, you, do how much needs to change, or what needs to change? Well, I definitely think that overdose deaths does change everything. That the risk of of uh, of not addressing people's uh, people who use the the health of people who use drugs 
is quite severe and significant. Um, and so we have to do things really differently. I believe that that is true. Um, and I think that that calls for entirely different strategies than we have used in the past. And that it calls for us to break out of this thinking that we've been really locked into for a very long time, which is, um, you know, we have to, people can't, people who use drugs can't make decisions for themselves. People who use drugs need to be coerced into treatment. Drugs have broken their brains. They can't make decisions. Uh, while that's just, that's not true, that it is, it's it's difficult for people. I mean, certainly drugs have a, a strong impact on people's decision making. But it also isn't true that people don't make decisions um, in support of their own health. What we see on the streets um, regarding meth and fentanyl and other drug use is, 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 a, is a, it's a larger issue. It's not just the drugs. You can't just say it's the drugs themselves. It's also a, a series of conditions that make people sicker, including a lack of housing and a lack of su- supports for people on the streets. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and I've, I've, you know, I've, I've worked in the field a long time, and I have worked, I've run treatment programs inside of prisons. Um, that were, you know, that were pretty effective. And at the time, they were effective insofar as people got some benefit out of them. But when they left the, the uh, correctional setting, they, people, many people returned to drug use. So I would say, right. on balance, um, the impact that a mass incarceration system has uh, and the damage that that does to communities, particularly black and brown communities, does not, on balance way in the favor of using a correctional system to fix what is a massive public health and housing and social supports problem. You know, one question I have, and and it's, you know, I hear people say it to me all the time on the street. You know, when we see people who seem quite literally out of their minds on meth and then harm reduction advocates say like, well, people... make rational decisions, or at least sometimes, like within these settings, I think it's really hard for people to square some of the individual experiences that they have on the street from what you experience in more of like a treatment setting. So how, how what would you say to someone? Like, how, how would you help someone understand what you're trying to say and balance it with, you know, the experiences that they may have that might be actually quite scary for them, like on the street? Oh, sure. I understand that. Um, and I will say that we've treated with people who have meth for years and frequently... Uh, very often successfully, meaning that they use less meth, they don't use meth, uh, they don't use drugs, they've returned to kind of uh, fuller functioning engagement in the community. So we have worked with people who use meth before. Um, there, currently, there's an intervention, uh, an evidence-based intervention that's being supported by the state, uh, and you can we, we've got an approval to use Medi-Cal to fund it, and it's being implemented in San Francisco, and it's called contingency management. And so this is uh, this is an intervention in which people are paid money for using less meth. And it's, uh, it's been, this study's been re- these studies have been replicated over and over again. So I say to you, if people can't make rational decisions, people who use meth cannot make rational decisions, how does paying people, why is that effective? It's effective because the reward for them is good, great enough that they've made a decision to follow the reward to follow the incentive. And so people are able to make decisions. Um, and there's also, you have to understand, in the, in the full continuum of people who use methamphetamine, there are some people who use very chaotically and they can, and it can show behaviors that look like um, psychosis. And there are some people who use rarely and occasionally. And so for those people, 
that they 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 go to a party they they use it occasionally it doesn't necessarily it isn't like sort of reefer madness and use one time and your brain is destroyed there's a continuum of people and for people at the highest end the ones that we see on the street the ones whose behaviors can be very troubling then we have to think about what else can we do to keep them engaged in care and how can we wrap services around them to keep them safe and to have the community feel safe Let's go um, to some calls. Lots of people want to get in on this conversation. Fred in San Francisco, welcome. Hi, this is Fred. Thanks so much for this topic. It's such an important, valuable topic. I, um, you know, I'm raising a family. I have three young kids in San Francisco. I'm also a, uh, a sober alcoholic and former drug user who used, uh, who bought and used heroin and cocaine on the streets of San Francisco. For me, I think the idea that anyone um, is going to establish a public policy around simply treatment and not incarceration of drug users is so frustrating. It seems so idealistic and unrealistic. Um, So I really agree with the idea that incarceration and treatment while incarcerated is really key to solving the drug crisis in San Francisco. Hmm. And I'll just end by saying that I was recently at an event for a man who's announcing his um, his run uh, for mayor of San Francisco. And I put this question to him and felt so surprised and frustrated by his perspective, at least at the time, that incarceration simply isn't needed for people who are using drugs in San Francisco. Uh, it just seems so naive and so counterproductive. So that's my comment. Thanks again hey. um, so much for Fred, appreciate your perspective. Sam, I want to ask you, Sam Kiernis, Fred clearly agrees with the perspective of your piece. Um, One of my questions is, is it realistic to expect that we can reform jail and the carceral system in general such that it actually helps people? Yes, absolutely. It's happening now. It's happening now, right now. Go go, go check out uh, Columbus, Ohio's new jail. It's It's a marvel. Go check out um, the, the jail that I wrote about in um, Kenton County, Kentucky. Um, where, and the key thing is this. Uh, what was earlier said by your other guests was, was important to, to recognize that it's true. People who are in jail and then have some treatment center and then are just let out and they're on their own, they frequently have trouble. Yes, absolutely. But that's why what's happening now in certain counties is so exciting to watch because from the jail experiment, rethinking how jail happens and what you get, what, what, what the, the approach in jail is through treatment, recovery pods. Most jails have drugs in them. These recovery pods don't because the people who are in them buy into this. You get your social workers who are preparing you to leave, which is a radical idea in jails in America to the point where you, you're, you're, you're signing up for Medicaid, so you have medical insurance when you leave. You get medically-assisted treatment, so you have medically-assisted treatment when you, when you, when, when you leave. But then it's not, it hasn't stopped there, and that's the fascinating thing about some of these places. And that is that they are developing a continuum of care. From that jail experience has developed a continuum of care that can last two, three years when people are on the outside. It involves drug court. It involves uh, a sober living, job placement, tattoo removal, on and on and on and on. A variety of things like that that I find fascinating, a radical idea. As an old, longtime crime reporter, I never thought jail could be done a different way until I, until I began seeing some of these experiments 
um, in, in action. I would say here's the problem. Um, I do I do believe that people on the street and you were seeing this in the most egregious cases in San Francisco, but certainly in L.A. where I'm from, I see it all, all the time. Feels like people simply have lost the ability to lost the through drug use have lost that that instinct for self-preservation. So they repeatedly refuse treatment that we have a program down in the county here in Los Angeles called reaching the 95%. That's because 95% of the people on the street offered treatment, offered housing, refuse it. And to me, this is... What, what was the number that you example. just used, Sam? 95%. They call it reaching the 95%. It's a program run by the Addiction Services Department out of LA County. And it's because so many people refuse it, or when they, they have some epiphany and say, yeah, actually, I'd like to, very quickly you find a huge number of those folks, once they're in housing, uh, very quickly leave. Uh, once they're in treatment, very quickly leave. There needs to be, I believe, to save the lives of these people, a coercive element to it, as your first caller just said. There needs to be the use of law enforcement saying, this is what you got yeah. you got to do and the drug courts are a good place for that for that to happen jail i think is being used right now in other parts not on the west coast because the the debate on the west coast doesn't allow for it there's no ideas that's saying maybe we should try this and because they're trying it someplace else it seems to be working fairly well why don't we try yeah. here but the debate Sam, Vitka, here is you, so stifled vitka what do you think so uh, it's it's actually not true that we haven't tried um putting treatment inside of uh, correctional settings in California. In fact, there's an extensive treatment program in the California Department of Corrections has been since the 90s. Uh, California, state of California is a state that adopted uh, medication for addiction treatment in the state prison system, has some 16,000 people currently on uh, medication for addiction treatment, including what we call opioid agonist treatment, methadone, right. And buprenorphine has some 16,000 people and in an effort to, because people were overdosing and dying inside the state prison system. Many of the larger county yeah. jails have it as well. There's been treatment programs. There's kind of aftercare continuum programs. So in that way, California has been fairly forward thinking in terms of that. I would just say that um, people want it to be effective. They want it, it, incarceration to be the answer because in this country, we're so locked into thinking it's either like, like we can't give it, it drives our social policy. You can't give people Medicaid. Uh, people should have a job requirement for Medicaid because if you give things away, people won't work for it. In this country, we're so locked into kind of a coercive thinking that we it it breaks our ability to think outside of the box of that. So I understand people thinking that way, but unfortunately, the research over time has not supported that as being an effective intervention. And and what happens with coercive treatment? is that over the years, coercive treatment has been around for a really long time. Drug courts have been around for decades. Um, over the years, the substance use treatment system has become what I refer to as addicted to coercion. Because if people are forced to be there, you don't have to innovate, right? You don't have to be creative. You don't have to try new things to figure out how to really meet people where they are uh, and, and take care of their needs. And it's true that the statistic that you quoted the uh, 90, reaching the 95%, that has been persistent for decades. That there are, you know, we always say there's, you know, in this country, there's 23 million people who have problematic drug drug use. Um, of that, 
two to three million seek treatment and get it, one million seek treatment and can't get it, and the rest are not seeking treatment. And so it's our job to figure out how to meet their needs and how to take care of them and how to offer things to them that will be helpful. And that's kind of, that's the research that led to some of the medications we use and to contingency management. So Vitka, I mean, if you think that what Sam is suggesting won't work and people think that what we're doing right now in the Bay Area isn't working, then what is the next step? Like, what's the path here? So, uh, and I think that we have to really be incredibly innovative in what we do. And I think uh, other countries have done this, and they have met some success. And I think in this country, we have to try the same. So let me tell you a little, uh, little known fact about treatment. People who go to treatment, about 50% of people who enter treatment, leave treatment prematurely. Okay, and that when I say around 50%, this is also held true for a really long time. When I say 50% leave treatment prematurely, that includes some of the people who are on um, methadone and buprenorphine. They have a tendency to stay to kind of stick stick with treatment longer. Behavioral treatment's a little bit shorter. Um, So we give them something that lots of people don't particularly necessarily want or need. Um, Also, people are frequently asked to leave treatment because they have returned to drug use. Um, that is so common that it's even built into some of the like statute and code of how treatment programs operate, that you can't have people using drugs in the program. So when people exhibit the symptoms for which you, they came to you, then you ask them, to, they have to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we now have, had, have to take that and take a look, a hard look at what treatment looks like and figure out what is it that people want, what do they need, and how do we keep them there? <laughs> We're talking about strategies to reduce drug addiction and overdose deaths given the flood of meth meth and fentanyl on our streets. We're joined by Vitka Eisen, president and CEO of HealthRight360, San Francisco's largest drug treatment provider. Also, Sam Quinones, journalist and author. His books include The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth, and Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. We would love to hear from you. What public responses to drug addiction do you support? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Have your attitudes towards the drug crisis changed? 866-733-6786. 6786 emails form at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about strategies to reduce drug addiction, overdose deaths with Vitka Eisen, president and CEO of HealthRate360, San Francisco's largest drug treatment provider, and Sam Quinones, 
uh, journalist and author. His recent piece in The Atlantic is titled America's Approach to Addiction Has Gone Off the Rails. We're also taking some of your calls and comments. Do you have experience with drug addiction and treatment? What did you find helpful? What did you find harmful? What do people not understand about it? You can give us a call. Number is 866-733-6786. Or if you can't get through there, try forum at kqed.org. And you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads. We're KQED Forum. I want to bring in uh, Becky in Oakland. Welcome. Thank you. Um, thanks for taking my call. And thanks for having this program because we don't talk about meth use enough. My son started using meth at about 14, 15, had struggling with mental illness, with trauma from his infancy, addicted and psychotic so quickly, in and out of jail, in and out of treatment programs. What ultimately helped him, he would get kicked out of treatment programs, not for drug use, but for mental illness behaviors, hmm. things like ranting or, you know, having tantrums, um, it, and then so treatment didn't really work for him. Twelve steps, he couldn't handle it. He was too young and also, quite frankly, too too unstable to do 12 steps. Hmm. Um, and so what ultimately has helped him stay off meth for six months, which is the longest time, he's 21 now, in the past seven years, was EMDR therapy, like really addressing his trauma. And interestingly, the EMDR also addressed his craving. And we had no idea that it sort of could help with addiction. We did it, my partner and I, my wife and I, just as a, well, let's just try this. And um, so I just want to say that I feel like treatment is so one notice often, both outpatient and inpatient treatment. It have, focuses heavily on 12 steps and peer support. And there are a lot of people with coexisting disorders who just can't handle the 12 steps, and they can't handle the hyperstructure and the sort of generalized approach that mm. that most uh, American treatment provides right now. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you. I appreciate you. Uh, I used to work for Sisters. Health Right 360 has always changed with the times, and I really appreciate that. Yeah. Hey, thank, Becky, thank you so much. And I'm, I'm really sorry about your son. That's heartbreaking, I think, for anyone anyone to consider um and i'm glad glad something's been able to to help um vidka do you want to talk a little bit about the the core critique there too about the the treatment maybe is um kind of like you were saying not innovative enough not willing to try enough different things um yeah alexis thanks Uh, and becky thank you for sharing that i think that you speak exactly to the point that i was trying to make and i'm glad your son is uh, is stable now um and I, and I think there are, just like we've learned that there are cancers, uh, and there's like probably, you know, dozens of different medications that treat hypertension, there are, di- like, people approach their drug use differently, uh, and we have to approach problematic drug use for people differently. And that's exactly the point. If So for some people, for some people, drug use, they have underlying um mental health issues. We have to address their underlying mental health issues. Um, and we also have to address kind of social determinants of uh, social drivers of health, mm-hmm. people who don't have housing. You know, some people who use meth use meth because they have no housing. I mean, they use meth. Uh, and given $10, they get $10 and they have nowhere to live um, and no food. Um, they may buy meth, use meth because it takes care of a couple of problems at the same time. They'll stay awake so they can be safe, 
and it'll get them some food. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, sorry, they won't need food. They won't mm-hmm. be hungry. And so um, we have to address all of those things, housing security, social supports, um, underlying mental health issues. Uh, we have to address issues of race and poverty, all of those things that drive different drivers of people's drug use. Mm-hmm. And we have to do that in a way that's not the way we've always done it. Yeah. I want to get to the issue of supply, the supply of drugs that are on the streets, which I think you each have different kind of uh, approaches to. Sam, talk to me about what you think can be done about the supply of drugs, given the reporting that you've done, which has shown basically the industrialization of a lot of these processes and the centralization of a lot of the processes in, in kind of one part of the, the world and in a way that it seems like it's pretty difficult to stop trafficking into the U.S. Well, I would say this. Uh, yes, it, it, all of that sounds, is, is true. It's uh, very difficult. And I would also say, though, that we have... Um, we have a kind of a stalemate between the two countries that I think has been a problem for many, 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 many years. And we think, well, nothing can be done because there's a stalemate. I actually uh, a little bit more optimistic. It does require, however, um, new approaches on the part of both uh, governments. First of all, Mexican government needs to step up in a much bigger way. I lived in Mexico 10 years, wrote two books about the country. And my goodness, it just needs such a different approach to this whole problem understanding that this is crushing um, um, Mexico and, and opportunities for a lot of, of, of working class and poor people. Um, I would say, um, and, and the corruption that, that is down there is, is, is just a, a disaster. Um, I would say, too, that, that we need to understand the essential role that our, uh, our uh, gun policy plays in what's going on down in Mexico and the the, uh, the, the, the availability of assault weapons um, since the end of the ban on uh, com- uh, commercial sale of assault weapons 2004 has really fueled the, the wars down there and has really been uh, helped ensure the impunity of the mm-hmm. drug trafficking groups down in, down in Mexico to be able to make all those supplies that are so um, destructive to um, our towns and counties around around the country. Um, it's not. It's it's that's a lot longer, more time than we would. Yeah, ever yeah, have yeah, on yeah. A program no, like this, no, but yeah. but um, I it, it I don't I believe that we with with proper collaboration between the two countries, which is something that has been very difficult to achieve. And I, as I said, I lived down there a lot of years. I understand the history is very deep and complex and all. For sure. But um, with that, I don't. I don't see this as a nat- the current situation as a natural situation. It has to do, you know, if you don't, down in Mexico, if you don't attack mafias, they will spread. That's what we did in the United States. Jedgar Hoover didn't believe that there was such a mafia. And so the, the, the Italian mob grew and metastasized and, and became a kind of a regional organized crime thing that, and that wasn't really addressed until... He died, and, 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 and a decade later, we're, now the mafia is really kind of a footnote, um, I think, the Italian mob is. Um, and I think that that's what's not happened hmm. down mm-hmm. in Mexico. It has happened here. It has not happened down in yeah. Mexico. Vitka, um, you have a different perspective on, on supply. How, how are you thinking about what needs to happen to change the supply of dangerous drugs? Well, I think other countries have um, adopted uh, something called the safer supply. And safer supply is 
increase the types of medicines or medications that can be available to treat people with substance use disorder, which would include using other opioids that are more similar to either fentanyl or heroin to, as, as prescribed and dosed for them that would help um, alleviate their discomfort and pain and would also reduce. Uh, so if you had a safer supply program, you could you'd put the drug dealers out of business, I believe, because people would be able to get the, the, the medication that they need and that they're seeking in a way that is um, prepared for them, that is safer and, uh, and, and less dangerous. So this has been uh, piloted in Canada. Canada has several safe supply programs, including a uh, that's been in, in Vancouver, Vancouver Coastal Health. That's a, a pilot, um, even pharmaceutical heroin program. And I've talked to people who were in that program who talked about the fact that getting that getting that drug meant that they had like a much more less chaotic life. Uh, it didn't they didn't have to resort to crime, um, and also it gave them a longer period of time while they were maintained and didn't have to constantly be scrambling for drugs. It's been done in Switzerland, been done in Europe, uh, and I think. But in this country, it's really hard for us to think about that. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. I mean, just to draw out the implication that the government would be providing drugs to people, which I, that that has always seemed like the big stipping, sticking point in these safe supply conversations, right? Well, yeah, that's yeah. why, I mean, that's why there's so much judgment around methadone, right? And yeah. and also in methadone, the way we dispense methadone to people yeah. uh, is is highly problematic. and makes people, even, even though it's one of the most effective interventions for people with opioid use disorders, studied for decades. Decades and decades, tons of research that supports its efficacy. We make it incredibly difficult uh, and kind of humiliating for people and dehumanizing for people to get methadone. Mm. Now, you could get methadone if you have a pain condition. Alexis, your doctor could, well, they used to be able to prescribe methadone for your pain condition, but your doctor can't prescribe it for your uh, opioid use Mm. disorder. You have to go through an entirely different system for that. Mm. And so that has... It, that has been has resulted in people not getting the medicines they need to be able to be fully functional. Um, we've got uh, more calls coming in, specifically on the uh, and comments on the question of incarceration. A couple of comments, and then we're going to go to David in Sacramento. Gabriel writes: When people with means want to quit drugs, they check themselves into a facility where there are no drugs present because they know they don't have the willpower to resist on their own. Jailing users should be thought of the same way. Brittany writes, over the last several years, I was in favor of removing incarceration from the mix. However, since the pandemic hit, the crime rates and addiction issues hitting our communities are getting out of hand. I don't know the answer, but what we're doing doesn't seem to be working. I hope for a comprehensive program that can rehabilitate effectively. I'm curious if your guest heading up the program in San Francisco has visited these jails and other states that claim to be helping. It's worth exploring, right? We'll pause on that for one sec. David in Sacramento. Welcome. Hi there. Thank you for uh, having me. I just wanted to comment on the previous caller, the woman who uh, said what helped her son was um, EMDR therapy to address trauma. And I, I, work in a, I work in a prison. I'm an art therapist specifically. And I, since working in a prison and in uh, at Department of State Hospitals as well, the number one issue I've seen with a lot of uh, these people, these guys who are addicted, is early childhood sexual trauma. And this is something I, I, I barely hear anything about, you know, in, in regarding addressing the, drug, the, the addiction problem. And sexual abuse is, to me, the number one problem in this world. Hmm. And we don't see enough trauma therapy with addiction. And, and with the woman who's talking about, um, you know, California being forefront, you know, with, the, with these medications and whatnot, I, I've seen... What I've seen with the medications in the prison system, and this is only what I've seen, 
it's only medication being distributed, but there's no therapy going along with it. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of guys asking, when are the groups going to start? When are the classes going to start? I'm taking this medication, but yeah. no, this is all I'm doing. And it's so true. It's, 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 <laughs> California's uh, prison system, you know, regarding m- m- mentally ill and uh, drug yeah. addiction, from what I've seen, only from what I've seen, is not working. Atrocious. Yeah, it's atrocious, David. And um, I have heard that there are David. I appreciate that, your uh, your perspective. I just we're we're running out of time. I want to get to a, at least one more call. I'm sorry, David. Thank you so much for uh, for that perspective, Jennifer uh, Friedenbach, San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I just wanted to comment around. You know, I think a lot of people saying what we're doing is not working. I would reframe it about what we're not doing. And what we don't have is a system that comes anywhere near meeting the overwhelming and diverse needs of folks um, that are out there with severe addictive disorders. And some callers have mentioned trauma therapy, dual diagnosis, um, those, you know, that that is incredibly important. Um, I also just want to add to it that, you know, we did a, a study of, with including about 600 unhoused people with uh, four different universities, and what we found is for the folks who had substance use issues, um, their housing status, um, for most of them, their housing status overwhelmingly um, acted as a barrier to addressing their substance use issues. Mm. Um, and so we found that 67% of participants, they got their in treatment, they were doing really well, 67% of the participants exited out to the streets or to a short-term stay in a shelter and then the streets, um, and that 88% said that, and these are folks with, with addictive disorders, that stable housing is crucial mm-hmm. um, in maintaining their treatment goals. Yeah. And treatment would prove pointless if they didn't have stable housing. And so I just wanted to put that out there, and it's been mentioned a little bit, but this is really, um, in terms of you know, specifically that intersection around homelessness and substance use mm-hmm. and um, really uh, is a problem. And um, I think, you know, that that's a big piece of the puzzle yeah. here that needs to happen. Thank you, Jennifer. Appreciate that uh, very much. Um, Vidka, I wanted to ask you this. Um, I, I think Sam's kind of central challenges or, or, or central kind of point is that there's a possibility of some kind of political compromise if some form of incarceration is included in the mix. Let's call it, you know, the the, the most progressive forms of rehabilitative, re- rehabilitative uh, incarceration are in the mix. Do you, would you accept such a compromise? You know, for if there were more funding for the different things, make the supply safer, bring wraparound services, do these things. Like, do you see a, a political compromise possible in that space to bring more resources to bear for people, or? Is that not something that you see actually is is tenable? Well, uh, I try not to make the conversation be about the politics. I, I'm not naive. I understand that it is. Uh, but I really try to stay focused on what what's going to work for people uh, and what should we be doing and what should we be doing differently. But I'll just um, say, I think the political compromise is partially about what will work for people who are not addicted to drugs on the street. Right. I mean, that sure. because sure, people sure, sure. Uh, that is yeah. the reason that politics works is because people are really upset about what they're seeing. Yeah. So so um, let me use let me use um, overdose prevention services or supervised consumption as an example. Um, so um, I believe that we need to have overdose prevention services because of the toxic drug supply and the overdose uh, and the death crisis we see on the streets. 
Um, and I believe that that also addresses the community's concern around public drug use. Um, public drug use is awful, and it's awful for people who use drugs. It's awful for people who live in neighborhoods where people are using drugs. It's awful for business. It's awful for tourism. Like there's nobody who like, I don't think there's anybody who supports that. And uh, and I don't I personally don't believe that anybody should be able to do anything everywhere anywhere they want. What I do believe is we need to give people options, a, a range of, of of options that work for them, a really broad and creative range of options that work for them. Before we say, okay, now we have to, you're going to have to, I'm going to arrest you for this. And so I believe that if we'd had multiple locations, drop-in centers that had mm-hmm. that were robust and rich in service, where people could come and spend the day and take showers and uh, and have people who didn't judge them, who offered care, ready access to treatment of any kind if they wanted it, healthcare services, if we had multiple services all through the city, and so if we had those services. We would offer them to people to use them. And we would ask the people who use those services what they want and need, try to develop that. If people then chose to say, I'm going to use drugs here because this is convenient for me, I don't have a problem with a cop saying, well, listen, you can't do that here, but you can go two blocks there to that center, or you can go five blocks over there to that center, and they'll give you some services. But I think it's so easy for us to go to the let's arrest it and make it go away Mm -hmm. instead of doing the other work, which has led us talk to people who use drugs, talk to people in the community, and figure out community solutions. Um, yeah. Just one one last uh, comment from uh, Amelia in Palo Alto, who we're not going to be able to get to. She just wants to note that whatever's going on with the Mexican government, we also can't let the U.S. off the hook and its accountability, which I think we'd probably all uh, agree with there. We've been talking about strategies to reduce drug addiction and overdose deaths. Been joined by Vitka Eisen, president and CEO of HealthRight. 360, San Francisco's largest drug treatment provider. Thank you, Bitka. Thank you. Um, Sam Quinones, journalist and author, thank you so much for your reporting on the drug supply. Really important stuff. The books include The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth, and Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opioid, Opiate ep- uh, Epidemic. Thank you so much, Sam. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for all of your calls and comments. Really important to get to the bottom of this. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.